So, George. Ha! Got you. <laughs> Listeners, we're, uh, just, just before George starts, yes. we won't be able to stop him. We're, we're vertically challenged. Well, we're horizontally challenged as well. But um, we're now recording Float Your Boat from our homes because we're in isolation, as you all we are. know. Um, so I'll start by saying, you know, we apologise if some of the sound is a little bit, you know, dodgy. I, I think we've got it going okay, but... Um, most of our interviews will be on the phone or on Zoom, so if there's any dropouts or any cuts when we're editing, um, we're putting it together the best we can under difficult circumstances. So now, George, start. Welcome, welcome everybody, to another episode of Float Your Boat. We're back, Fred. We're we back. are. We're back. And, George, yeah. uh, where are you right now? I'm in my little girl's room at the back of the house, which is the quietest room that I could find in order to, you know, at least enhance the, uh, the, the audio quality for a little bit. But we are using Zoom, as you said, so it's, it's a bit awkward because I'm not next to you, right next to you, Brett. It actually yeah. sounds okay, I've got to say. And, and the uh, interview we're about to undertake, we've already recorded, which is usually the opposite way around where we do our preamble before we interview the person. Um, and I think the sound quality, um, well, in my headset, sounded quite good. So hopefully we're going to... I think I think we can hear Lennon in the background playing piano at one point. But yeah, yes, we could. <laughs> at least he was playing classical. <laughs> classical. He was indeed, and he was very good at it too. <laughs> so I, I, wanted to, I wanted to thank all our listeners for, for, for their patience, actually, because we've been away for a bit, and now we're back, and... Uh, and and what better what better thing to do than to uh, continue with people's stories during a time like like this? Exactly, and uh, we're going to try and do maybe one or two stories a week while this um, craziness is going on. Um, yeah. And uh, today's really well. Actually, last week was James Stewart, um, but that was recorded last season, right, George? Mm, yes. It was. Um, so this is our first stab at the new um, Corona Cam, for want of a better term. Corona, <laughs> corona Cam. Yes, yes. So, so the the lady we have on today is is an so American. So George. Yes. So who have we got on t- t- today? <laughs> uh, uh, we'll try that again. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah okay. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. We're interviewing. I don't want to interrupt. That. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, it's payback time because listeners, as you're about to find out, the interview was the George show, the George show, George Sabados show. You know, I yeah. I kept on things. trying to interrupt and or let like get a question in, but I think George got so you got so excited with this woman oh, that you were really, you were like a gooey little child. I was. I was leaving puddles on the floor. I was that excited. Yeah. It's t- terrible. Yes. Well, you know, lucky you weren't leaving. I. I uh, anyway, it was good. She was great. She's she's great. You're going to love this interview, everybody. Yeah, so she, so go, George. Go. To, she's an Sorry, what was that again? <laughs> oh, Brett. Oh, come on. Let me get this out. Okay, go, an, go, go. She's an, she's an American oceanographer. Hey, George. Marine? Yes. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting Moo! cow. Moo! <laughs> 
Sorry, started going go. I can't get this out. <laughs> she, so, so, so today we have an American oceanographer, a marine biologist, and the co-founder, CEO, and senior scientist at the Ocean Research and Conservation Association, also known as ORCA. She is the world's leading expert on bioluminescence, if you know what that means. I've got and no idea. groundbreaking techniques for luring in and capturing on film the legendary Kraken. Release the and Kraken. In she was awarded the MacArthur Fellowship for her efforts protecting aquatic ecosystems. Now, she's made over 250 dives. Release the in Kraken. Release the Kraken. The only Kraken I know is the spice rum. Or the cracking uh, in your the back of your dax when you bend over. <laughs> we, we all have a cracking then. That's more like a chasm than a cracking. <laughs> that's a, that requires a deep sea dive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a Greek thing, right? Meh. <laughs> 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 oh, I just don't go there. All right, this this lovely lady doesn't need to have those kind of jokes. Yeah, okay. I'm. I'll, we'll get serious now. Yes. Yeah, she's she's made over 250 deep sea dives in submersibles, and her research involving those submersibles has been featured in BBC, PBS, Discovery Channel, and National Geographic television productions. And she has made uh, a few TED talks as well, which um, I would welcome every listener to go and have a look at it's absolutely amazing so without further ado we're going to introduce edith smith edith is it edith wider or widder widder wider yes widder edie widder smith see i see it as edith but she said but she likes edie anyway so it's either edith or edie she loves it anyway let's get on with the show here we go Let's, let's get her on Welcome to the Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. Edie, welcome to our disparate studio. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing, George? Uh, very well, thank you. Uh, as you know, uh, Brett and I have to stay well apart. We're not in the same studio. And thank you very much for making the time to be on our, uh, well, Zoom call studio recording. You jumped at the chance to to uh, be interviewed by us. Why, why is that, Edie? Because I'm locked in my house. <laughs> <laughs> You're going crazy, stir crazy, are you? <laughs> yeah, it sounded like a nice change of pace. Well... Well, you know, in, in the intro, I, I did talk about how you, you've done over 250 dives in a submersible, and I think they're very tight. They're tight, confined spaces, aren't they? They are, but there's some very interesting things to see from those tight, confined spaces. Yeah, right. So, uh, Edith, uh, sorry, Edie, Edith, <coughs> I'm used to Edith. I think Edith's a lovely name, by the way. I'm Brett. How are you? Um, Hi, Brett. Um, <laughs> I... 
Before we get into that, George, because George yes. has jumped to the end of the interview instead of the start, as he usually <laughs> no. does, um, no. I thought we should start with um, how are you going amongst all this craziness that we're going through yeah. at the moment? Well, actually, um, it's it's been very, very easy on me because uh, I've actually been staying home and working on a book that I have been supposed to be working on for some time now, and I've never had time. And so this is the perfect opportunity. That's yeah. Well, and I also thought in those little, um, those little submarine things that you go in, you'd be used to being in a confined space, right? I yeah, just but you're exploring while you're in that confined space. You have the opportunity to see something at any moment that nobody's ever seen before. I don't feel like that in my house. <laughs> Gee, you, you wouldn't want to have claustrophobia, would you, in your profession? You know. I would have thought that I ha didn't have claustrophobia, um, but um, a few years ago I had to go in for an MRI and they slid me into that machine after asking me if I was claustrophobic and I said no. They slid me in and I opened my eyes and saw that wall right in front of my face and suddenly I got the sweats and all of the classic claustrophobic feelings. So apparently under the right circumstances, I can be claustrophobic. So, wow. so tell us where where it all began. Where did you, where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in the Boston area, grew up there. Um, actually, my first great adventure was at age 11. We traveled down to Australia and uh, lived there for about half a year. And really? It was actually, yeah, I was actually living there that I decided I wanted to be a biologist. Now, you didn't say that in any of your videos, your TEDx talks. Uh, Nobody so, ever asked me before. <laughs> <laughs> so, so why? How did that happen? I mean, that must have been very strange. That was nineteen nineteen. Uh, uh, sorry for this. I'm going to give up your age, but that was around nineteen sixty-two, sixty-three. Very good mathematics, there, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. One and one. Uh, pretty good with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was sixty-two. <laughs> George, yes, can, George can yeah. count to twenty-one. <laughs> and and uh, we lived in Kew, just outside Melbourne. Wow. And I went to an amazing school called Press Hill, which was probably the predecessor of Montessori. Uh, it was a one-room right. classroom, but it was an amazing place. And I loved school for the first time in my life. Up until then, I'd hated it. And um, I got to see all kinds of animal life. And we went down to Phillips Island and saw the fairy penguins. And I got to um, hold a wombat and try and climb trees after koalas. And that's when I decided I wanted to be a biologist. Oh, you sound like a quintessential Aussie kid. That's oh, amazing. I, I, I was just desolate when my parents said we had to go home. I threatened to break my arm, which was the most imaginative I could be. <laughs> you didn't think about running they away? Would just, they would just put it in a cast and take me home anyway. And I, I was stumped. Yeah, that wasn't going to work. That that was a. Hey, uh, I, I am curious though. How did you end? Well, why did you end up in Australia? Why did your parents come here? Um, both my parents were PhD mathematicians. My dad was a Harvard professor. My mom a Tufts professor. Right. And uh, he had a Fulbright scholarship to the University of Melbourne that year. Wow, wow. So um, you're the underachiever in the family, are you? I am. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. Oh, well, well done. So, so you stayed here for how long? Um, it was a little more than half a year. 
yeah, that was a very short stint at the university. Yeah. So yeah, that's a shame. It, so, Edith so what was Australia like back then? What did, what did you think? What did you think of Australia coming from Arlington? Well, I was very intimidated by the schools because everybody wore these clunky-looking uniforms, um, and uh, you know you had to have a blazer and a tie. I had to wear a tie and these clunky shoes. But at, at Press Hill, we were allowed to climb trees on on uh, morning break, and you climb up in a tree in a treehouse for lunch break, and um, we did walkabouts and it was amazing. So when you when you left Australia, did you go back to Arlington? Well, actually when we left Australia, our, we had one major stop on the way back and that was Fiji. Right. And that's when I changed biology to marine biology. Oh, right, right. Okay, and tell us about that experience. Like you obviously went off for a swim. Uh, were you on, on well, your own? Yeah, actually, I was. I mean, I was 11 years old, and in, unfortunately, in those days, um, we were on the Coral Coast, and the the resort owners encouraged us to go out and explore the reef, and then, you know, put on sneakers and walk on the living reef. Oh, which now I look back on with absolute horror, but at the time, I didn't know any better, and neither did my parents. And uh, but they they knew so little about the dangers of the reef that they let me go out and explore it by myself. <laughs> so there were giant clams out there that could have swallowed me whole. And at one wow. point, I actually caught um, what I later learned was a lionfish <laughs> um, in a plastic bag. <laughs> right. And I, I was going to take it back to show my parents, and then I was afraid it might suffocate in the bag. And so I carefully put it back. And then several years later in an aquarium, I saw the exact same fish and the explanation of how poisonous it was. So my marine biology career might have ended before it even started. Wow, <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, obviously you were extremely fascinated by that experience. Uh, what, what actually was going through your mind at the time when you were looking around and exploring the coral reef? Oh, just that all of these incredible creatures and all of this amazing color. And I wanted to know why, you know, why these animals looked the way they did and how they behaved. And I wanted to know as much as I could about them. Well, you sound like you sound like you're a very determined individual. I mean, you made you 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 set it as your goal, as your career goal from the age of 11 and a half, 12. Mm -hmm. uh, so then, then what happened? You went back to America, and where did you park? Where did your parents park themselves? And and then, how did you end up in marine biology? So we came back, and uh, I realized that I needed to start getting good grades if I wanted to actually go on and be a marine biologist. I still hated school; just absolutely hated it. It was not anything like Press Hill. And, right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I miss that so much. And in fact, I didn't start enjoying school until I got to um, uh, graduate level and I was working on my PhD. That I loved. Um, so I did my um, uh, bachelor's on the East Coast and then I went on the, to the West Coast with my husband um, and uh, did a master's and a PhD out there in Santa Barbara. Uh, and I was working on um, the neurobiology of a bioluminescent dinoflagellate. And right, okay. the, the fact that this, this little thing could make light was just a convenience. I didn't really think that that was the important part at the time. Um, and I was trying to uh, measure the electrical signal that triggered its flash. 
Um, and I succeeded in doing that, but I got very interested in this ability of animals to make light. And then my uh, major professor was really good at, at getting funding for equipment. And he got this really great new toy in the lab, which was a super duper spectrophotometer. And I could never keep my hands off of things like that. And so I became kind of the lab expert on it. And once I was, he said, well, you know, now that you got this thing working, I think we need to start sending you to sea to measure all these animals in the ocean that make light that nobody's ever been able to measure before. And suddenly I was the thing I'd always wanted to be, which was a seagoing marine biologist. How small a was it? Bioluminescent creature, the flagellate. Yes, how Dino small was it? It was one millimeter, one millimeter long. Oh my God, you must have had very, very, very tiny electrodes. I did. I had to pull them myself and they were used micro manipulators and had to design a way to hold the cells so that I could stick an electrode in it. It was, it was tricky, but it was fun. This was, um, you know, really the early days of, um, you know, exploring the ocean, I, I take it. So, so you had to design all the measuring equipment yourself or certainly the, the, the little bits and pieces that would uh, measure, measure what you wanted to measure with those little creatures, right? Yeah, I did a lot of uh, designing of, of equipment. Right, so your work was more than just a marine biologist. You had to think about how to, how to create the instruments to, to measure what you wanted to measure. Right. Right. So explain to me, uh, to our listeners as well, you, you've done some groundbreaking work in, uh, in, that, in that area, right? So can you name some of, the, some of the stuff you came up with in the early days? Uh, so, uh, well, one of the reasons I was able to do this, um, was because the Office of Naval Research had an interest in bioluminescence because it could be used to track submarines. And so they wanted a way to measure bioluminescence more accurately than it had ever been measured before. So I developed the instruments that the Navy still uses as the standard for measuring bioluminescence. Oh, Wow. Wow, do, the, do the, the submarines go so deep that they actually start impacting upon those creatures? And then- Yeah, well, at, those creatures then, aren't that deep. I, I mean, uh, they could, at night, they, they can be in surface waters, um, but right. um, sub, so there's bioluminescence throughout the depth and breadth of the ocean. And you drag a net okay. from a thousand meters to the surface, most of the animals you bring up in that net make light sometimes 80 to 90% of them. Really? Yeah, wow. much more than people realize. Cause it's, it's, it's out the, in the open ocean. It's not where humans spend much time, but it happens to be the biggest living space on the planet by far. So uh, I'm assuming, I'm assuming, I mean, I'm, I'm getting ahead of, uh, of uh, your, <laughs> your CV, but, but I'm assuming that the creatures that live out in the ocean in the ocean depths that create bioluminescence. Um, they, they once upon a time were close to sunlight. Is that correct? And then they developed the technique for dealing with the depths and the darkness. Is that correct? That's, or... that's, pretty, that's pretty close. Yeah. So um, during evolution, as, as the ocean filled up with ever swifter and nastier predators, there's no uh, trees or bushes for animals to hide behind, no hidey holes. And right. so, you know, you either evolve so you swim faster than your predators or you have to be able to hide somehow. The only place to hide out there is to go down deeper where it's darker. 
And so a lot of animals started to move into the dark depths, but they already had evolved eyes. So they were visual animals. And so the selection pressure was to develop more enhanced visual signaling capabilities. Right. So you could imagine an animal like a fish that had attracted a mate by raising its opercula to show spots or something. And now those spots needed to become more visible. And then that's how bioluminescence came into play. I mean, it's a crazy, it's a crazy, crazy concept in evolutionary terms, I think. It, it is, but, but we actually found an example of it. We found an example of uh, evolution caught in the act. So really? Tell us we, about that. We were diving in a submersible, um, I can't remember now whether it was off, I think it was off New England. And uh, there was a, um, something in the, in the distance and we came, came up on it and it's this octopus hanging upside down, but it's an octopus that has webbing between its arms. And we, we, ca we managed to capture it and with the submersible and bring it up, up into the lab on the ship. And I was photographing it. And my postdoc at the time looked over my shoulder as I was taking this close-up photograph. And he said, you know, those don't look much like suckers. And I looked closer and I said, you're right, they don't. And we both thought they looked like light organs. So we grabbed this octopus and we took it into a dark room and sure enough, they lit up. And so this octopus, you can imagine had evolved to live on the bottom where its suckers are useful for holding onto things. But for some reason it got pushed out into the open ocean environment where its suckers aren't useful for holding onto things anymore but they are still useful for one other thing that an octopus will use its suckers for, and that is to attract a mate. A male will sometimes throw his arms up over his head to display his suckers to a female. Right. Well, now those suckers become bioluminescent. That's an attractant for um, a potential mate. But now they have another use too, because this particular octopus, which we, um, we uh, eventually became um, uh, well, we called it the red balloon octopus because that's kind of what it looked like when it um, went through this one behavior where it, um, it would open its arms out and twinkle those lights. And that would bring in copepods, which are kind of like the insects of the ocean. It would be like moths being drawn to a flame. Right. And then it would turn itself into this big red balloon as it closed its arms up around where the copepods were swarming and then pull them down to its mouth. So this fairly good sized octopus made its living off of eating these tiny things called copepods. It would be kind of like a raccoon in Florida living on mosquitoes. There's certainly enough of them, but you know, you, how do you catch enough of them? Well, it developed a way to do it using bioluminescence. Wow. Wow. I, I, I guess the first, um, the first, uh, the, its early ancestors must have starved a little bit <laughs> trying to <laughs> try to develop the technique. I mean, well, that, that's why they call it selection. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess you never in in uh, in in time frames. So like, uh, have you do, do you do you know how long it would take for a creature to develop that kind of that kind of capability? Roughly speaking, would it be thousands of years, hundreds of years, or millions of years? Well, we used to we used to think in in thousands and thousands of years, but there have been examples of animals that have made pretty rapid transitions um, in in 
in pretty short order. So it's a little hard to predict. But it makes sense. It makes sense that it would be the latter because um, a whole species could die out in transition, couldn't it? Yeah, and certainly did, I'm sure. Right, right. Okay. Okay. Well, I know we've jumped the gun. Let's go back a little bit. Let's go back to your first deep sea dive in a submersible. When did that happen and where was it? So I, I had been going out to sea with this great spectrometer making measurements and I got to go on this one expedition that was testing a diving suit um, that was called WASP. That's not an acronym, it's just somebody thought it kind of looked like the insect because it had a big yellow body and a bulbous head and pincers for arms. And um, uh, I would get on the headset with whichever scientist was down in the suit at the time and talk to them and say, well, would you turn out the lights and tell me what you see? Because I was interested in bioluminescence. And they turn out the lights and then these supposedly dispassionate scientists would give me something like, oh, wow, that is so cool. And I'd say, you know, could you be a little more specific? And they were terrible at it. <laughs> and I was really frustrated. And uh, the chief scientist kind of took pity on me. And he said, well, you know, if you want to stay around for another year or two, we can get you trained up as a pilot and you could go down and check it out. And so on the basis of that kind of offhand comment, I turned down a postdoc position, a pretty good one um, in the middle of the country and uh, stayed around and lifted weights for a year so that I could train up to, to dive in the wasp. And so my first dive, deep dive in a submersible was in that diving suit in the Santa Barbara Channel. Right. It was a, an evening dive. Um, I went down to 880 feet and I turned out the lights and I was just blown away. It was like Van Gogh's Starry Night. Just this amazing light show swirling around me and I had no idea who or what was making all that light, but I was completely hooked. And at that point, I didn't even see how I could make a career out of this, but it didn't matter. I was just going to have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so <laughs> well, I mean, it's one thing to be awed by something like that, but um, how, did, how did you end up making a career out of it? Because you are the world's leading expert on bioluminescence. I was definitely in the right place at the right time. So... Uh, it was the end of the Cold War. And um, as I said, the Navy had a strong interest in bioluminescence. And so I got a considerable amount of funding from the Office of Naval Research for, for quite a few years. They funded my graduate career, my postdoctoral career. They set me up in my first lab when I came to Florida um, and funded me for quite a few years there as well. So uh, so you've been, I take it the, the, the wasp suit, was that untethered or it was tethered to the, the mothership? It was tethered. It had, it had a, um, a cable that carried power down to the suit, 440 volts. And how, um, how deep could that go? 2,000 feet. 2,000 feet. And, and, have and you actually, you, you asked about claustrophobia, and I actually did have a feeling of claustrophobia once when I was diving wasp. I had... Um, gotten down to 1,880 feet. The surface called down to tell me that I had just broken the world depth record in the WASP. And I said, what the hell do you mean? I thought this thing was rated to 2,000 feet. And they said, yeah, but nobody's ever been. And I suddenly <laughs> had this really clear image of how much water was on top of me and how long it had taken to get down there. 
And at that moment, the syntactic foam on the outside of the suit cracked and made a big popping noise. And that's not structural. And I, I even, I was pretty sure I knew that it wasn't structural, but it scared the heck out of me. So, and so, and so I, I, you know, I had that sense of claustrophobia of just get me the hell out of here. And fortunately, a really gorgeous jellyfish swam in front of me at that moment, and I managed to refocus my attention on it and and fight down the panic. And I was okay after that. But I, I, I take it that jellyfish was all lit up for you, right? It wasn't, but it was pretty gorgeous nonetheless. R right, right. Now, were you at the bottom? Were you at the bottom in that instance? Like, were you standing yes. standing on the bottom of the ocean? Well, you can't really stand in the wasp because it doesn't have legs. Oh, it's okay. Just, it's just it's a called the it's a midwater um, submersible, so it it just has thrusters that you fly around with. Okay. So, Edith, okay. um, sorry me, to jump in uh, on George. Sorry uh, to jump in on take George. You to some Georgie. of the George. TEDx talks that you've uh, that you've done in your time. Now, one of your most famous ones was um, in Chasing the Kraken. Yes. Now, that was an amazing, amazing uh, um, TEDx talk. But but the, what was even more amazing for me was the and, and anyone listening to this podcast should get a hold of the uh, the TEDx talk and and have a look at the uh, what you filmed. It was absolutely amazing. Now, can you tell us about you know, these mythical, these supposedly mythical creatures that mariners used to talk about, you know, in the 1800s and, and even before, and no one ever found until you captured them on film. Tell us the story of that. So sailors would come back with stories of these horrific sea monsters, creatures so big that um, when you found them floating at the surface, they could be mistaken for an island. And if you approach them with the ship, they, they would have all of these writhing arms that would come up out of the water and pull the, the ship and the sailors to um, salty deaths. But, you know, they were sailor stories and they were largely dismissed. And then I think it was 1862, thereabouts, that um, a French warship uh, operating off the Canary Islands came on one of these and they came came up on it. It was still sort of alive, maybe. Um, and they fired some cannon at it <laughs> to make sure they finished it off. Wow. And <laughs> then they they threw a line around it. And um, when they tried to pull it onto the ship, the line actually cut through the body. Um, but they managed to bring the not the arms, but the mantle back to to France, to Paris. Right. And and it was um, uh, presented to the Academy of Sciences, the French Academy of Sciences, and finally accepted as the real deal. And actually, um, Jules Verne was writing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea at the time that report came out. And so that's how he came to include the giant squid in um, his story, which further added to its mystique. And so it's not like it's been this unknown creature because um, dead specimens have floated up over the years in different places and they've been studied by scientists. So we certainly knew that they existed, um, but it, it became kind of this quest. Uh, it was called the Holy Grail of natural history cinematography to try to get a Kraken on film. And so there were a bunch of different expeditions that were put together. There was a, a international one 
um, in New Zealand that was done over a two-year period, huge amounts of money spent on these things, and they never came back with anything. Um, and so I, my, the first TED Talk I gave was uh, on a National Geographic vessel. It was the first TED ever done at sea. And um, I didn't even know what TED was, but I was happy to go to the Galapagos Island where this was, was taking place and um, give a talk about bioluminescence. And in that talk, I, I showed video that I had taken um, with a camera system I developed that I called the eye in the sea. So the eye in the sea was something I'd thought about for a long time, um, was, which was a way to see animals in the ocean without scaring them. And so it used red light that's invisible to most deep sea animals. And it had an optical lure that imitated a certain type of bioluminescence that I thought might be attractive um, to large predators. And actually the first time I used it was in the Gulf of Mexico. And 86 seconds after I turned that lure on for the first time, we recorded a squid over six feet long attacking it. It was completely new to science, couldn't even be placed in any known scientific family. And I had been having a really, really hard time getting this funded. But once I got that, I got significant funding and we developed the world's first deep sea webcam in the Monterey Canyon. And I had another version of this eye in the sea down there with the optical lure. And we saw squid attacking that over and over again. So I showed video of that in that TED talk. Well, one of the other people out there on that expedition um, was Mike Degree, who was a giant squid hunter. And I mean, he was a great um, natural history cinematographer and um, biologist in his own right. And he uh, got incredibly excited when he saw that video. And afterwards, you know, he pulled me aside and he said, do you think that would work for a giant squid? And I said, yeah, I think it might. I mean, think about it. Giant squid have the largest eyes of any animal in the animal kingdom. Really? And we go down there with these bright white lights that must be like looking into the sun for them. And of course they're gonna run away. And we have these platforms that have no noisy thrusters. You know, think about it. We need to be thinking about what they might be attracted to. And this lure seems to work as an attractant. Yeah, I think it might work. And so it was Mike that got me invited on this big expedition off Japan in 2012 that was funded primarily by um, NHK, the Japan Broadcasting Corporation. Um, and some of it, the money came from Discovery Channel. Right. So, right. so, now, so now Edith. Giant squids, I mean, they're huge. You, said, you described one as, as being as tall as a two-story house. How is it that such big creatures can actually live at those depths? Well, they don't have any air-filled spaces in their bodies. And so um, there are a lot of creatures, big creatures that live at, at great, great depths. There's giant six scale sharks. There's, there's a, a lot of animals. It's the air-filled spaces that, that make the pressure most problematic. Um, so uh, the fact- But I'm assuming there's not much, sorry, I'm assuming that, sorry to interrupt you, but, but I'm assuming there's not much oxygen down there in the water. Uh, um, it's low in, in some places. There are oxygen minimum zones that a lot of the animals avoid. Um, but um, some squid, like Humboldt squid, also known as jumbo squid, seem to be able to thrive in oxygen minimum zones. So it just depends on how their metabolism has evolved. Yeah, right. 
Right. And and what do they what do they eat? Most squid eat other squid. In fact, jumbo squid eat each other. <laughs> That's their <laughs> favorite food. They're cannibals. That must be very interesting when it comes time to mating. Oh well, they work it out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I look. I, I really was fascinated by some of the creatures you described in uh, in in your your TEDx uh, talks and, and your videos, like the chains of jellyfish called siphonophores. Yes, that that that's the word. <laughs> They're longer than a room, and they and they pump out so much light that you can read the dials and gauges inside your suit. Oh yes, a lot longer than a room, longer than an auditorium. Absolutely, they're amazing. But what? I have what's, no idea how old they are to get that long. Because they uh, presumably they grow very slowly. Uh, maybe not. I mean, we don't know. Depend depends on the species. But um, when you see one that's you know ten meters long, I, you do have to wonder how long did it take to get that long. And and what's its purpose? Well, what's your purpose? <laughs> to talk to a lot. <laughs> oh, you didn't say very much uh, so far, Brett. Yes, I can't, because I can't get a word in from you, George. Edith, right. I've got a question for you. I know it's um, probably not related to the, the uh, age of the, the um, creature, but it strikes me that when you were young, you had no fear, and that's gone right through your life. Do you ever get fearful? When you're way down deep, um, certainly capable of it. Yes, I, I mean there there have been some some um, difficult moments in submersibles, but uh, um, you know in general I feel like it's safer than driving in a car. Statistically, it is anyway. But mentally, I guess more so because I'm just wondering people that are that will be listening to this uh, podcast will go oh, my God, you'd never get me in one of those things and you'd never get me down deep. So is there a mindset that goes with when you're going to do a dive or do you just not think about it? It's just something that you love so much that you just do it. Oh, it's something I love so much that I, you can't keep me away. And, and I'm just so excited about what I might see on any particular dive that that's all I can think about. Yeah, right. It's not any effort at all. Amazing. Amazing. Well, well, which, 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 uh, apart from apart from that lovely piano music in the background, which is which is your most beautiful um, creature at, at uh, in the sea? Because we can go through a few of them that I'd like to talk to you about. Okay. Well, I mean, there's no question that the jellies are just the most gorgeous things you can ever imagine. Some of the tinafores um, are look like they're made out of cut glass. Um, and then they've got these rainbow colors, if you see them under white light from the beating of their teen rows. Um, and th they can be so elaborate. I mean, some of these lobate tinafores are just so exquisitely beautiful. Yeah, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned also that there are, there are fish down there with built-in headlights. And, oh, uh, there's many of those, yes. And, that, uh, and they're quite interesting because they actually do look like headlights, but... But some of them, I mean, most of them have blue, blue emitting color, um, but but some have red, right? And you said that there's a difference, right? R uh, blue, what's the difference between the lights and, and why are there different colors? 
So if you open your eyes underwater, everything looks blue because the water is a filter. It, it filters out all the reds, the yellows, and the oranges very quickly. Right. Uh, blue travels the furthest. And so that's the wavelength that's been selected for to optimize communication underwater. Most animals produce blue light. Most animals can only see blue light. But as you mentioned, there's some exceptions. And this, one of those is the stoplight fish. And it has a big light organ under each eye that produces red light. And in fact, the stoplight fish was kind of the uh, inspiration for my eye in the sea camera system. I copied something it does with its red light to, to um, get make it be as um, inconspicuous to other animals as possible. And uh, it, the thing that's interesting about the stoplight fish is it not only sees blue light, it can see red light. So it uses its red bioluminescence like a sniper scope to be right. able to sneak up on animals that are blind to that red light. It can see them, but they can't see it. And they can also use it as a private wavelength to communicate with each other uh, to attract a mate. Right, right. Amazing, amazing. And, and what about the, the viper fish or the dragon fish? What is it that you like about it? It's a Christmas tree of a fish. Everything on that fish lights up. So it's got a light organ under each eye. It's got a, a, this wonderful long fishing pole that sticks out of the top of its head and arches in front of the toothy jaw that gives the viper fish its name. It's got light organs in its mouth that light up. And when they light up, it, it the teeth are almost like fiber optics. They're transparent, and it makes them look like they're flashing. Right. And uh, there's um, light organs in all of the, um, the scales. Uh, there's a mucus layer on the back and the belly that when it lights up, it produces an outline of the fish. And, you know, it's, and there's light organs, a different type of light organ on the belly that is used for a type of camouflage um, that a lot of these animals use in the open ocean environment. It's, in, it's incredible fish. And, and presumably it evolved that way in order to what, use different ways of catching prey? It's used for all of the, the critical things that an animal needs to do to, to survive. It uses it as a lure to find food, as a flashlight to see food. It, um, it uses it um, to uh, attract mates and uh, to defend against predators. Right. So, okay. Edith. And, and, and so what, about, what about the dwarf males that you were, you were, talk, you were speaking of? So those, are, those are the anglerfish. Most people know about anglerfish yes. thanks to Finding Nemo. Yes. Um, although I do wish they'd spent just a teensy bit more money and, and maybe paid some poor graduate student to be a consultant that could have told them that those are not the eyes of a living anglerfish. Those are the eyes of an anglerfish that's been preserved in formalin. Um, <laughs> but but um, uh, the anglerfish that people recognize as anglerfish are the females. The males in the anglerfish world are very tiny compared to the females. They're what are called dwarf males. They have no lure for attracting food. They have no, um, sorry, <laughs> they, uh, they, have, they have no lure for attracting um, food, no teeth for eating it if they did attract it. Um, the only thing they've got are big eyes that allow them to look for a female and they recognize the female by the shape of the lure and then once they find her, they attached with an eternal kiss. They, they um, latch on and basically become a, a kind of parasite. Her 
bloodstream grows into his body and feeds him and um he just is a sperm bag <laughs> i think a lot of males are like that <laughs> anyway uh, the... i didn't say that <laughs> uh, george the, uh, would it's interesting though because that that would that would assume that the moment they're born they have to look for a female to attach to is that correct because otherwise they but... would die they need to find one pretty fast. Yeah, I don't know what the length of the time is. Yeah, right. Right, that, that's amazing. And, and the shining tube shoulder. They squirt light out of a tube on their shoulder. It's a, um, amazing. Yeah, they have a lot of pretty bizarre adaptations. Which is, which is possibly the most bizarre um, animal you've ever seen? Oh, goodness. It it's different if you ask me that on a, any day i'd probably come up with a different answer but um the uh uh which is a, a pelagic sea cucumber some people call it a um a, a flying chicken it looks like a a, a plucked chicken um, really? but, <laughs> but uh it's actually strangely beautiful because it's got this web that it swims with and if you rub rub it it um, produces luminescence that's, that smears on your hand and marks you like um, the ink packets in a bank when a bank robber um, steals money. That's they they're marking the the predator, making it easy prey. So so you you can you, you struggle to wash it off, do you? Yeah. Oh wow! So there are times that you've come back from from a from a dive. Uh, sorry, there are times that you've actually played with these creatures and and. Uh, and when you switched off the lights in your cabin, you lit up like a Christmas tree? Well, still in the lab. I usually wash my hands before I go back to the cabin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Very, very interesting. And now, now you, getting back to the, 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 the deep sea, the, the kraken, the, the giant squid, uh, um, how big can they get? They can get as tall as a four-story building. Well, that's huge. It is. It's absolutely huge. And, and to think that there's something that enormous in our oceans that it's taken this long till 2012 to be able to, to get video of, I mean, we're not doing this right. Yeah, yeah. So you, you to tell us a little bit more about that because you, you once made a comment about, um, you know, we're spending more on space exploration than, than ocean exploration. What, what's your opinion, your view on that? Well, I'm in favor of all exploration, but I think right now we need to be concentrating on our own planet. We don't understand how life on this rock works. We're just a little speck of space dust. The only speck of space dust in the entire universe that we know of right now that sustains life. And we don't understand how it's done, but we know the ocean plays a major, major role. And so mm. if we want to be exploring something, I think that's what we need to be exploring right now. Yeah, and you've, you've spent a lot of time, um, you know, uh, championing the uh, the preservation of our oceans, and even President Obama uh, pledged, um, you know, uh, I think seven was it seven hundred thousand square miles of of ocean to be preserved um, from from fishing and uh, and just used for uh, as a as a marine reserve. Did that actually come about? Uh, I think that was George Bush, actually. Believe it or George, not. Really? I think so. Yes. Wow. Okay. And it's still in place. It hasn't been. It hasn't been. Yeah, stripped but away. The, thing, the thing is, marine protected areas are only as good as as the protections 
that are enforced. And so it's, it's all very well to name an area, a marine protected area, but if you can't enforce those protections, then it's not very helpful. Right, and, and, there's, and what's going on in your, in your view? Well, a lot of um, the, the big fishing nations are always trying to push the envelope in terms of you know, where, where they're, they're fishing to be able to um, increase their catches. Yeah, right, and, and you've actually seen that, have you? Yeah, um, it, it's, it's one of the saddest things um, that's going on in the oceans that most people are unaware of, that uh, these, um, there are super trawlers out there just dredging the sea and, um, and they're, they're, they fly under a foreign flag and they, they do it in international waters and then they're, they're, for all intents and purposes, they're like pirates and, uh, and no one can stop them. The worst, in my opinion, are the ones that, that bottom trawl. So these, these bottom trawling nets have these big rollers on them and they roll across the bottom of the ocean to cause the um, fish and shrimp to jump up into the net. And, um, uh, but they just scrape the bottom clean. And so you take what was a, a magnificent undersea garden that could have sustained life indefinitely and uh, turn it into a moonscape that that won't sustain life for hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and is that what led you to f to found your um, your not for profit? Yeah, well, actually, um, the the tipping point for me was uh, when I actually first got the eye in the sea working, which was um, two thousand and four, um, and and recorded that squid completely new to science. That was the same year that the US Commission on Ocean Policy report came out. And in my career, I'd never seen anything quite like that report, but it just detailed the deterioration of the ocean on so many different fronts. And I was at a point in my career where I was looking to move on to something different because the submersible program I'd been part of was being wound down, much to my dismay. Um, and I looked at, you know, the possibility of going on in academia, but I, I just felt like I needed to do something. And um, so starting ORCA was um, my way of, of trying to give back to the ocean I love. Well, it obviously um, paid some dividends. You were, you were recognized and you were awarded the uh, MacArthur Fellowship for your efforts. Um, so, uh, it, and, and that, was, that was in response to you, your, your efforts protecting the aquatic ecosystems, yes? Yes, that was the reason, and, and I was very grateful for that. Now, well, what does that body actually do, if you don't mind me asking? The, the MacArthur Fellowship recognizes people who do great, great things in, in uh, different fields? That's correct. Um, it's, it's sometimes um, described as the uh, um, American Nobel Prize. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, uh, they give you a big chunk of money, a half a million dollars uh, at the time that I received it um, with no strings attached. Uh, you, you can go out and spend it on a house if you want. I hope um, you didn't go to the casino and put it all on number 21 on the uh, roulette table. I managed to resist. I put it every penny of it into Orca. Wow. So Edith, wow, um, what's, what's next on the agenda for you? Like you're writing a book currently. Um, What's, uh, what's the medium and long-term plan? Oh, I'm just trying to keep Orca afloat. That's not easy to do these days. And especially with this, this recent downturn economically, I'm very worried about trying to keep a not-for-profit funded. So yes, um, we, we know that well, Edith. <laughs> so, uh, so Edith, what, um, how can people get in touch? 
touch with you? Like if they want to contribute or they want to donate or what's, what platforms do they need to uh, look at? Well, I sent you our, our, our Facebook and Instagram, um, but if you go to teamorca.org, um, that, uh, that's our webpage and uh, there's contact information there and information about some of the um, conservation programs that, that we're involved with. Now, I know George could ask a million more questions because he, he spent a week on writing all the questions down, but we've, uh, <laughs> we've got we've to wind it up. So I guess um, the most important question at the end of our, each of our interviews is what's your favourite song? Um, well, in keeping with the theme of Float Your Boat, uh, I would say Jerry Rafferty's Get It Right Next Time. Ah, yeah, right. Classic. What a classic. So, George, uh, have you got one more question before we wind up? Uh, no, I just just keep on farting in the dark, uh, Edith. Just, you know, I, I love that little comment you made about, you know, how it is when you go down in submersibles. I take it you're still doing it? Oh, yes. Any chance I get. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Edith, I could ask you a million and one questions, but I think I think it, I, all I could do is recommend our viewers, uh, our listeners, go to uh, go to uh, YouTube and and uh, look up your name and, and they'll they'll be mesmerized by what they see. Well, thank you. You've, Edith, done, you've done amazing work, Edith. It's amazing what you're doing. And it's been a pleasure listening to all of your you know, travels and tales. It's been fantastic. And I hope, and I hope that when uh, when we get over this coronavirus, so you might make another trip down to uh, you know Australia to launch your book. And we'd be happy. We'd be happy to take you out for a beer. I, I actually have an Australian publisher, so I will be coming to Australia. Oh, fantastic! Oh, then we have awesome. to catch up. That bring way your, we can bring, have a Bring your swimmers. Bring your swimmers. We'll take you down to Bondi. Okay, sounds good. All right, guys, it's been, been good talking to you. Thanks, Thanks Edith. Edith. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. You take care.
Yeah. <laughs>